0: The Guardian Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books podcast with me, Sean Kane.
1: Me, Richard Lee.
2: And me, Claire Armistead.
0: This week we speak to the award-winning journalist Nezreen Malik about her new book challenging what she calls the toxic myths behind our age of discontent. She tells Claire how progressive causes are being hampered by ill-researched or deliberately misleading stories of political correctness or identity politics and explains how freedom of speech has become a cover for promoting prejudice.
3: Free speech myth believers have tried to use that as a way to silence dissent or objection to increasingly racist, aggressive or violent views. But first. Here at The Guardian, every time we
0: are asked to assemble a list of the top 10, 20 of anything, we are both excited and nervous to share the results with the world. Lists tend to provoke a lot of whataboutery, which is a fun prospect for some people who just want to share their own choices, and an opportunity to complain about some critical deficit on our part. Well, we're sorry, we've done another list, and it is a big one. Across The Guardian, we are looking at the best cultural works of the 21st century – arts, films, music, and books. Having canvassed our critics, we have come up with a ranked list of the top 100 books published since 2000. And before anyone throws their headphones off in a huff, we know the 21st century began in 2001. We needed to allow a bit of leeway for TV and art, which could span years. So... Number one is Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel. Claire, you spoke to her about her win. What did she what did she have to say? Oh Hilary
2: is totally fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody knows. She's as well as being a very, very serious novelist, she's very mischievous. And I think it's that combination of wit and and wisdom that, that makes her fiction so special. But she gave me a bit of a ticking off because I said, "What? how does it feel like to be so successful so late in life? And she said, she said, some readers congratulate me on beginning my career in my 50s. They don't think I wrote anything before Wolf Hall. I'm glad, of course, if I can offer anyone midlife encouragement, but I began writing at 22, wrote for 12 years before I published anything and broke through in my mid-30s. I've had plenty of time to brace myself for success.
0: <laughs> I was imagining her in a sort of robe, sort of reclining as she dictated that to someone to send to you. I just think that, <laughs> You know, way,
2: we we think that sort of female confidence is a big breakthrough of of your generation, Charlotte, mm. But actually, here you have a woman who is un- entirely possessed yeah. and confident, and we love her for it mm. because because there's such a a reflex in my generation of, of sort of shrugging off success. Yeah,
0: apologising
3: for being apologizing good at something. For, yeah. It
1: reminds me of Doris Lessing's reaction to winning the Nobel Prize. When <laughs> <laughs> she said, oh, I've got the full set now.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Not another one.
2: <laughs> uh, the other thing I also was um, when the idea of Of writing about Thomas Cromwell first came to her and she said when I learnt about the dissolution of the monasteries at my convent school it seemed to me a very good idea so I I then went back to her because actually this was by email, she's incredibly busy and doesn't live anywhere near London at the moment and I said I'm not quite sure what you mean by that do you mean it seemed a very good idea to write about Thomas Cromwell she said no 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 she meant it was a very good idea to dis- to, to dissolve the monasteries.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a perspective you get when you're at convent school. When you're at school. <laughs> <laughs> so why did why did we sort of come to this conclusion because Warfall was by far the thing that was nominated most by the critics that we asked.
2: Yeah I would have put in a claim I did in fact put in a claim for Beyond Black which I think is a, a work of evil genius mm-hmm. um, which I keep going back to and keep Pressing on other people. However, it is undoubtedly true that Wolf Hall is her monument. And the reason it is, is uh, she has sort of, in some way, reshaped the way we do history, this sort of monumental dynastic history that we so love, ceremonial history, because she's rebuilt it from the ground up. It's like a great big edifice, but instead of looking at it from the top down, it's from the ground up. Um, And she's got into a bit of trouble about it from some historians for her historical revisionism, notably about Thomas More in this first volume. But as she says, history is a process, not a locked box with a collection of facts inside. The past and the present are always in dialogue. There can hardly be history without revisionism. Hmm. No, and that's why she's so brilliant. But it's not just a revisionism of fact. It's a revisionism of style and of means of re-evoking the past.
0: And how these books have continued to not only sell well but also re- going back and rereading them how much these books reverberate with politics that we see today and the characters you see in politics in her books can be mapped out onto the people that we see in politics today. Oh,
2: exactly. And as she also says there may not be Beheadings in these days, but there's still a Tower of London. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, and the third volume, of course, is out in March next year, "The Mirror and the Light," which has been long awaited. So, congratulations to Mantel; oh, she's having a good couple years. <laughs> what else do we think about the list? Um, of course, we've all sort of put in claims for things that we wanted to be there, and of course, then there are obviously things that are left off, and sometimes what is left off is just as interesting as what is.
2: There. Well, I, I think having a, a veteran of these lists of many, many years, I think our previous lists have been quite retrospective. I think they're very invested in, in a sort of sense of a grand tradition. And I think that this list reflects the fact that we've slightly come out of the age of deference. And I don't think that's just about us. I think that literature is generally coming out of a, it's, its enthrallment to a sort of grand tradition. And this is reflected in the fact um, that we have a couple of science fiction titles and also three graphic novels going back to um, Jimmy Corrigan The Smartest Kid on Earth which was Chris Ware's 2001 graphic novel which won our first book prize and at the point at which we gave it our first book prize it was sort of unheard of for a graphic novel to win a a mainstream literary prize Mm. and and, you know you look back now and you think how could that be?
0: Yes you know now we get uh, graphic novels up for the booker.
2: It also does reflect one of the anomalies of this list across all the art forms which is that Jimmy Corrigan first appeared as a strip in the 1990s. Yes
0: exactly and then Obviously, we've had said span short stories, poetry, fiction, nonfiction, and we did find that there was a tendency amongst most people when nominating books that they did tend towards fiction, which I guess has a lot to do with perhaps emotional links to uh, fiction that is formed uh, perhaps a little bit more easily than a nonfiction book.
1: And, and also maybe the way that fiction sort of seems to last because mm. it's about the human condition, whereas a nonfiction book is about a particular understanding of a particular subject at a particular moment.
0: Yes. And so like with some of the nonfiction that we have on this list, um, books like The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff, which uh, was only released in 2018. But it was decided that it was a particularly remarkable book in that she's done a wonderful job of documenting how the sort of big tech giants like Facebook and Google and lots of the Silicon Valley companies have been able to monetize our personal information so obviously she's written this book over a long period of time and it happened to come out last year but it's so reflective of our time now and also the last 15 years that we thought it was it was sort of too good to to be left off even though it only came out last year
2: interesting it's a she's a woman and, and we've we have got a 50 50 split haven't we yes on this we do, yes how, how deliberate you were the person who in the end curated all our different arguments. How how did how easy was it to make it a fifty fifty slip? It was
0: very easy actually. We we didn't we didn't really have any trouble with it at all. Um one interesting thing that we did tend to see that was we we had a lot of women uh, writing non fiction and we actually had probably too many women writing fiction as well <laughs> we didn't have enough male novelists which is not usually a problem that I think these lists tend to encounter. It's a pretty even split between fiction and nonfiction as well. One thing that we did try to make an effort to do was poetry because not everyone is a poetry reader so not all the critics that we asked felt up to nominating poetry so the few that did we really sort of paid attention to what they nominated and made sure that we found I, made some, ol- you I made some. I nominated Seamus Heaney and and, you're a and woman Alice of world Oswald. yeah um, they're both there um and then caroline duffy as well and claudia rankin there are quite a lot of americans there are a lot of americans and that is something that we tend to see and i think it, it's kind of it's not necessarily a accurate depiction of the world but i think it is actually quite accurate in terms of what is published um and we do see this i mean um, in terms of like translated work for example we have 14 books on this 100 that are Uh, works of translation so so if you say 14% and and the the average in the UK for publishing is something
2: like 3% so it's it's better but but it still does skew the world in terms of in 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 the direction of Anglo cultures exactly
0: yeah so I think there is a sort of tendency that that obviously UK publishing given that we're writing from the UK as a UK publication that there is a tendency to be quite anglophonic and so We don't necessarily get all the best books from Europe, but we have tried to feature as many as possible and then also uh, authors from Africa and uh, authors with Asian backgrounds. So we hope it's as reflective as the world as it possibly can be. But it was really pleasing that on the first go around when we made the list and it was purely just based on quality and passion from the Critics, it was actually pretty reflective. So, there are a few
2: omissions. Mi- I mean, before anybody else gets in, comes and kicks us in for th- things we've omitted, I will say that I have some regrets. Yes, that's part of the reason for these lists. Yes, it, it makes you define your regrets and uh, articulate to yourself why you, you value them. Yes, and one of mine is Dave Eggers, mm-hmm. um, and particularly Tune, which I think is a fantastic work of conscience and it's his account of um, the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. But when I thought about it, I thought, well, maybe. The point is that he is actually his main value is as a curator. He's a really brilliant curator and maybe the individual books are not the point of him. It's not that yes. they're not very good, but maybe the you know, if you were to have a list of cultural curators he would absolutely I would refuse <laughs> to have anything to do with a list that didn't have him on it.
0: Yes, yeah, so well that's the thing, it's like with Dave Vegas, I don't think of any individual book as a particular standout for him, but I like him as a thing, as a concept I'm glad that Dave Eggers writes but I wouldn't nominate any of his books as one of my particular favorite books and we had this as well with Toni Morrison we were looking at the career of Toni Morrison because of course that spanned into the 21st century so then we were looking at what she'd written and while she wrote fantastic books None of her best books were out in the twenty first century, and so we had to make that call. Well, okay, well, perhaps we don't put Toni Morrison on.
2: Yeah, I had we had the same on the art list, which I helped to compile, and I would have loved Louise Bourgeois to be on it, but actually, she only she only did a couple of works and the big spider that she did that was at Tate Modern it was there in the early 2000s but it was made before mm. and we couldn't with conscience include her.
0: <laughs> so Richard do you uh, have any books that you wish were on there?
1: Um, sad there's no space for Salamis, uh, Soldiers of Salamis mm. by Javier Cercas which I think is one of the great novels I've read let alone in the 21st century. Also sad there's no space for Marie de Sec, but again I think her best is probably before the 21st. Century began, but I mean, there's always space for for other names that we could we could put on if we had just a little more t- a little <laughs> more space to squeeze. Hundred,
0: top 110. <laughs> yeah. So, Richard, how about some of the stuff that did make it?
1: Uh, I was pleased that there was space for Carlo Rovelli, and um, we mm. went for his slimmest volume to date so far. It's his uh, Seven Brief Lessons in in Physics, which is kind of the the most elegant and rapid introduction to contemporary physics that you could possibly imagine um, if you haven't got time for a course in in advanced mathematics Um, and also pleased to see Daniel Kahneman there as well I think that's another book that I think is it's made people think about the way that they think in new and interesting ways
0: and I think similarly as well for me I was really pleased about just how many quite recent works that we felt confident enough to make the call that these would be lasting works Maggie Nelson's Argonauts yes you know it's just that that's a work that
2: challenges our ideas of gender and identity
0: and such a strange book on the face of it, you know, it never really fit into any one category. And you could take a look at her career and sort of think perhaps she might be a little bit academic on things like gender, you know, just, you know, a little bit too niche, but like how many people read that book, but also what it started for that sort of personal memoir writing and that that sort of exploration of gender, wrapping up the personal and the political is really amazing, you know, in such a short Space of time. It's. I do think it is actually a proper classic, and people will be reading it in twenty years.
2: There are some of the choices. They're big because of films, and yes. I. You know, in a way, that's true of Wolf Hall, isn't it? It's. It's got this whole industry around it, which is why it broke out of of the literary ghetto. um We've got books like Brooklyn, column Toy Beans mm. Brooklyn, which you think well, it had a relationship with film.
0: Yes, and things like, of course, we've got uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo at number 98. Um, it's a phenomenon. It's a phenomenon, yeah. it, it is. It, we felt it was too big not to mark, even though perhaps then you could have a debate, you know, is it the best written book? Are we doing the best written book since 2000? And we just kept it at best because we don't really want to get into that because it's all subjective anyway. It's best meaning somehow important yes I think it's like, it's kind of more significant books of the, of, since 2000 I think is perhaps more accurate and so that for that reason we have things like Dragon Tattoo and we have things like Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Um, which
2: I wouldn't have chosen, which I would you know, obviously one would
0: choose the Philosopher's Stone, but that was
2: written in before the 90s. that. That was written yeah. in the nineties. Yeah. And
0: so we and then we we sort of made a choice about, you know, which Harry Potter do we go for? Because then you've got three in the twenty first century that we could have gone for. And we went for number four because we thought that it was quite wonderfully uh, structured and plotted, but also it's the book where Harry sees death firsthand for the first time and it sort of has a real significance, I think, in a lot of people's childhoods in that it was a book that taught them what it was like to be an adult and what it was like to be on your own in the world. It was also the point at which your generation
2: sort of tipped over into adolescence, wasn't it? I think
0: so, especially people my age who sort of grew up with Harry, like literally was the same age as him as each book came out. And so we thought perhaps going for number four was actually a more interesting statement than to go for number seven and just say, well, this is here because it's standing in for the whole series. Just think, like, what Harry Potter did for, like, children's literature in terms of just convincing both parents and publishers that children would sit down and read a 600-page book in a day a lot of the time. (laughs) So that's why that's there. Um, And so, of course, people will probably debate the literary quality of Harry Potter, but I think you can't debate the significance of it, and that's why some of the books are on there. Anyway, if you'd like to see the whole list and if you'd like to tell us what you would have chosen to put on the list, head to the website to theguardian.com forward slash books and let us know your thoughts. After the break, we'll speak to Nezreen Malik about her new book, debunking the assumptions she says have fuelled our current political turmoil. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. In We Need New Stories, Nezreen Malik suggests that the mess we're in on both sides of the Atlantic is the effect of toxic delusions that need to be debunked. Would Donald Trump be where he is without his skill at manufacturing outrage with totally mendacious statements, for instance, about the dangers of immigration? Where would British Prime Minister Boris Johnson be without the myth of an idyllic past, fully uncontaminated by Brussels bureaucrats? Individually
3: and collectively, we need stories. It is a universal impulse. We need some galvanising, sense-making framework, a narrative, in order to instill order and a sense of purpose to our lives. Some myths are not only useful, they are necessary. All political orders are based on useful fictions which have allowed groups of humans from ancient Mesopotamia through to the Roman Empire and modern capitalist societies to cooperate in numbers far beyond the scope of any other species. Every social unit, from the family to the nation-state, functions on the basis of mythology, stories that set them apart from others. Some myths are less useful than others, and some are dangerously regressive. In Britain, I began to see these tales being told on a cultural, not just individual level, to justify the way things were and preserve the status quo. But they were not harmless, self-comforting bedtime stories. They were toxic delusions that had a purpose, to stymie change, and they broke the surface with the Brexit vote in the United Kingdom and the election of Donald Trump as president in the United States. My focus in this book is on the UK and the US, but I am keen to stress that myth-making is not confined to these two nations and to demonstrate that with comparisons to my own and other cultural experiences. Before these two significant events happened, a malignant thread had been running through Western history, and it is made of myths. These are not myths that animate believers into a shared sense of camaraderie and direction, They are myths that divide and instill a sense of superiority over others. Nations are susceptible to these impulses when going through times of instability or subordination or dictatorship and demagoguery. Again, myths are useful and comforting galvanizers, but when they take hold in democratic, ostensibly affluent societies, it is not a temporary madness, it is a culmination. I started to write this book at a time of both political awakening and despair when it was becoming clear that something was not working, where there was fear and distress, but also a healthy impulse to resist and mobilize. But the effort is inchoate and still fixated on the idea of returning to a time before it all went wrong, rather than the recognition that things have been going wrong all along." Well, Nazarene, you started this book several years ago, and um, I wondered whether you feel
2: victorious it's proved your thesis or whether you despair that it's just illustrated what your worst fears are.
3: Well, it was tricky. When When I wrote the proposal, I thought, I kind of want this book to be proved wrong because you don't want the world to slip into complete chaos just to have your point made. But unfortunately, that did not happen. And actually, towards the end of the writing process, There was so much to update all the time because there were so many examples. They kept buttressing the argument that I remember thinking, I have to call it at some point and just stop because the velocity of events was so that in the UK with Brexit and in the US with Trump, the myth thesis was becoming more and more clear and actually cutting through more to the mainstream. And people beginning to realize that There isn't some sort of British history that proves that we're going to be okay. There isn't this amazing American separation of powers, cast iron constitution that's going to contain Trump. So all these things were beginning to unravel in real time. And so it was a real effort to try and incorporate them into the book because they were happening. You identify six myths. That's the structure of your book. There's these six
2: dangerous stories we tell ourselves which are actually hampering our progress and they are gender equality, political correctness, free speech, identity politics, virtuous origin and unreliable narrator. Can we just go right to the what for me is the heart of it and just start with free speech because they are, all these are interconnected, aren't they?
3: So the free speech myth is one that I take very personally because it is the one that has affected me most in my work. It's also a myth that I saw developing in real time. The others have more of a a rich, long history, especially the political correctness one. But the free speech one, I think, is new and has developed over the past 10 years or so and is quite linked to online activity and social media. And with the free speech myth, very simply what happened is free speech myth believers have tried to use that as a way to silence dissent or objection to increasingly racist, aggressive or violent views that were expressed by either the right, actually the far right, and on the left, because we on the left are so wedded to the idea of free speech as this very important value that is a cornerstone of liberal society, have been basically gaslit or bamboozled into defending far right attacks on people by saying, look, that's their free speech. You know, even when people say things that you don't like, you have to support them. Um, And in my own work, what I've noticed is that having written for The Guardian exactly for 10 years, and witnessed the change in moderation policy, witnessed the change in tenor and tone towards writers of my kind of background, realized that this con of free speech was enabling people to be aggressive and incite violence, particularly online, and chill any objection to that by using the free speech excuse. You
2: mentioned the word moderation, just for people who not, don't know these media terms. What you mean is the, is the moderators who are controlling the comments. Yes. And you, you expressed some reservation to those comments being more increasingly shut down on very contentious issues.
3: Yes, for me, I mean, I grew, I, I'm part of a generation that began writing when there was a sort of action and reaction. I began writing in a time when comments were open there's another generation of writers that would just write and there was no way for them to receive feedback apart from you know someone writing a letter and putting it in the post which is nice actually but my generation the first piece I wrote is still online and the comments are still there and they are you know part abusive part praise and what happened over the past 10 years is that that process of going into the comment section and the thread and arguing with people and learning from them, you know, you make mistakes and kind of feeling that at the end of a written work about a controversial subject, the comments and the, the contribution from the public, from readers, had got us somewhere. And because the comments became more violent or more aggressive or more racist or more sexist, The Guardian had to basically make a decision to shut down comment threads entirely or not open them at all in the first place, which I find really sad because I feel like it robbed me of half the writing process, which is trying to see how things land with other people and their responses. But they had no choice because the tenor of conversation online over the past decade has changed so much that any comment thread became a free for all. And there is a duty of care to writers. And so the free speech issue here doesn't really apply, because you're trying to create intelligent content online, you're trying to create conversation. And if it becomes a contest of trying to fling as much dirt as the the writer as possible, that is not about free speech, that is about trying to get somewhere and trying to have useful conversation. But what happened, and it was really interesting, when I wrote an art. there's an excerpt from the book In the Guardian about free speech. The first comments I got were, oh, but the comment thread is closed. So how ironic. I'm <laughs> like, you actually did not but read. But you got
2: those comments on Twitter then, yes. did you? So, yes. so, so, but th- so people can bypass the fact that it's closed down on The Guardian. Exactly. And which, in the, which their is own a, space.
3: Exactly, which is a very good point because it shows you that this fixation on demanding that a particular platform give you the right of reply to a piece of writing or content is moot because the whole internet is your platform now. So if you can't comment on a piece that I wrote online at The Guardian, you can come find me on Twitter, you can find me on Facebook, you can send me an email. There are several ways that people can send me abuse and tell me to go back where I came from. And so The free speech logic is a way to make me feel like I have done something shameful and I have not allowed people to fling dirt at me because I am not a civilized believer in free speech. So it's a real con and many of us have fallen for
2: it. it's not just confined to the media, you have this really startling statement, which I'm still mulling over, which is free speech as an abstract value is now directly at odds with the sanctity of
3: life. Yes, that is some statement. Well, it depends where where you're sitting. This is the thing about free speech. I debate free speech in civilized parties with people who are not at the sharp end of free speech concerns, people who have not had their hijabs ripped off their heads, you know, people who have not been at the rough end of Tommy Robinson supporters inciting hatred or doxing them or finding out their address and putting it online. You know, people whose approach to free speech is very much an academic one. And then other people who can tell you that there is a correlation directly between something Boris Johnson says that morning or writes in his column and hate crime, spikes over the next few days, or giving someone a platform on Newsnight, or, you know, giving someone a platform on, on YouTube so that videos can go viral, platforming Katie Hopkins, for example, there, there are people who will then tell you that there is a direct correlation between incitement of racial hatred or gender hatred and on the ground actions. And so for those people, the concept of free speech is at odds with their own sanctity of life, because it affects their safety, it affects their mental health. It affects their prospects in society. It diminishes them and marginalizes them and disenfranchises them. But then, on the other hand, you have the kind of chattering classes who are always talking down to those people and saying, you know, if you just believe firmly enough in the concept of free speech, then these things will not land as badly as they do, which is just just a completely hypocritical and it's an abdication of the responsibility of what free speech is supposed to do.
2: On something like gender equality it's it gets much more textured and difficult so for example you talk about your own background in Sudan and how women collude with the practice of female genital mutilation for example.
3: With the myth of gender equality this was a chapter that kind of was was crowdsourced (laughs) because I wrote 10,000 words and then my editor and my agent read it and they had all sorts of other things they wanted to litigate from their own personal professional lives. So it became a bit of a monster at about 15,000 words. But it was because I felt that there are so many things that women are told about how much progress has been made. And I was struck by that when I moved to the UK because I thought that in my own family in Sudan, where the women are the enforcers, actually, not the men. The men kind of set down the rules and the women enforce them. And they genitally mutilate their own daughters. They force them into forced marriages. Sometimes there are honor killings, not where I'm from, but generally from kind of that part of the world. And I had always in my mind thought that that was because men were instructing them to do so. But then when I came to the UK and realized that there was a similar dynamic, obviously not as dramatic, but that women were aligning themselves with powerful men against other women to secure status, then I thought, oh, okay, this this is a myth here. The myth of gender equality here is that it is men against women, as opposed to it is about status. And women will ally themselves to superior status that can be derived from men, even if it means they themselves will lose some of their rights and I began to see all these similarities with my own family in a really conservative society in the UK and America. So women have to be aggressive in the workplace is one thing that
2: some of your career women tell you.
3: Exactly and I spoke to women across generations and some were at the end of their careers, some were at the beginning of their careers and they all said that they were told that to behave like a man or be told that you were behaving like a man is a compliment that they felt like it was a compliment because they had to shed their biological and kind of attitudinal femininity to gain proximity to men and in that way they in many subtle ways threw other women under the bus as well so i realized that also like that's what my aunts do (laughs) back home. They're not in STEM or academia, but they're also trying to sort of become facsimiles of the men in the family or propagators of their values so that they can get that compliment, basically.
2: Now you have this this line, interesting line that your father told you, which is a man is an axe. A man is an
3: axe. He breaks things, Omen is a bowl who gathers things. Yes,
2: yes. And, and that is cited as, in a way, a reactionary position. But um, Ursula Le Guin, the great science fiction writer, came up with the what she called the carrier bag theory of fiction. Do you know about this? I don't, actually. She not. came up with, um, and she was saying it challenged one of the dominant strands in storytelling, which is the story of the mammoth hunters told about bashing, thrusting, raping, killing about the hero. Mm. And she posited the carrier bag theory as a, as a stronger sort of storytelling. And I wondered whether there's a way we should be owning the bowl <laughs> as yeah. women and saying, we, we, you know, no, the point is we don't have an axe, we have a bowl and a bowl is a much stronger vessel for
3: carrying a civilization." This goes to the heart of the myth of gender equality, which is that women are always told that they're not lesser, they are complementary because biology has created this perfect yin and yang. So, you know, men do things, you know, they break and their acts and women do other things. Most of the time, that is a way to justify the status quo and say, you know, women have children and therefore they don't want to work as much. Or women have menstrual cycles that ravage their body and therefore they shouldn't be in senior positions. And the mistake we make, I think, most of the time is to try and argue against the diminishing aspects of femaleness or femininity and be like, well, actually, no, you know, women are stronger and they tolerate pain better. And and you're absolutely right. The way to do it is say, sure, you know, sometimes a woman is not on top of her game, but can we talk about also how men sometimes are blinded by testosterone and competitiveness? Like there's a whole piece of research I actually didn't get a chance to cite because then the chapter would have been a whole book about male behavior as mapped out before the credit crunch in 2006-2007 and it was that there was a pattern of behavior, a sort of shoal-like pattern of behavior when things began to go south in trading rooms and stock exchanges where men became panicked and competitive and began to behave in ways that basically brought the system down because of their hormonal makeup and you don't hear those kinds of analyses because men don't have hormones they're completely you know they're just stable and have equanimity all the time (laughs) but you hear that all the time when it comes to women and this idea of pink brains and blue brains and you know where women's intuition comes from and why they can't read maps and all that sort of stuff but you don't hear about men being analyzed in that way as well which is not to say that men are inferior but that we all have limitations you know we're all just you know biological beings that have different limitations so you're absolutely right there is a way to just embrace the complementarity theory and say sure you know we are different but why are we only fixated on how women are different because the man is the base case talking about the brain you take on some very powerful people don't you in this book you're
2: not afraid it's not all about people like Milo or y- y- Yiannopoulos no or yes <laughs> I, 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 I
3: say this uh, when people ask I know which chapter you're talking about I always say this, that the lawyers went through it with a fine tooth
2: comb. so Simon Baron Cohen for example the psychologist who, yeah. who posited the difference between male and female brains based on autism
3: <laughs> yes well I mean these are again if one looks even a little bit, this is, this is something I found in all the research for the myths is that you have these very august, very established people, academics, scientists, writers, mostly male, overwhelmingly male. And if you do a little bit of research, you will find their theories debunked very quickly by other women who are also scientists and academics and writers. And so with Simon Baron Cohen I kind of, you know, I kind of knew that it was nonsense, but then did a little bit of research and there was a, you know, huge piece of work done debunking his, his experiment that he himself debunked in the beginning of his book, <laughs> publishing the results, saying some male brains act like female brains and vice versa. And I'm like, okay, so why did you write this book then? <laughs> yeah, one of the problems also is that there isn't commensurate attention paid to the big theories by the big men and the debunking of them by women. Jordan Peterson is another person you take on. I mean, Jordan Peterson is just very very clever in that he has managed to have this patina of academic respectability to what are basically reactionary, conservative views that he has. When one does argue against Jordan Peterson, you're not arguing with an academic or an intellectual. You're arguing with basically a preacher, Um, a social preacher like a like a religious preacher and so the way the myth of gender equality and all myths are spread is via this sort of respectable you know not to be questioned by people who look and sound pretty sane who are from august institutions and have degrees they're not all sold by snake oil salesmen on the side of the road the title we need new stories yes
2: what are the new stories is there any hope for us or are we going to just disappear into the tower of Babel
3: no I think there is hope I'm really I mean I tried to say at the beginning of the last chapter that there is good news and the good news is the reason why people are invoking these myths so much more frequently and the myths are gaining velocity is because things are changing. It is a defensive posture, actually. It's because there are more women and people of color and LGBTQ plus people in the public space. Um, Not enough, not nearly enough, but enough to rattle the establishment that people are coming back with these very aggressive defense mechanisms, which are, you know, women are trying to cannibalize the space of men by like demanding more than is their fair share. Political correctness and freedom of speech are undermining neutrality and academia because we are accommodating hysterical, thin-skinned people of color or whatever. And so the good news is things are bad because they are getting better. And so the new stories are keep challenging, keep arguing in a way that there's a whole part about social media and how we need to argue differently and not become really partisan about myths because they are deployed by both the right and the left. And also just always understand that there is a regressive component to myths. The reason why myths exist is to stop things changing. And once you have that lens, there's even a bit in the last chapter where it gives specific instructions about when you read a story, if you see that that story no matter what the detail of it is, if it's in the Daily Mail, if it's in the Guardian, wherever it is, if it is phrased in such a way as so to make you feel like, what fresh hell is this? You know, something new is happening and it's scary and it's beginning to change the world in a way that is unfamiliar. You need to be suspicious of that narrative and just be more open to change as a benign and inevitable process as, well as something that we need to push back against. Nazreen Malik. We Need New Stories is published by Weidenfeld and
0: Nicholson. And that's all for this week. Next week, we'll speak to Anne Patchett about her new novel, revolving around two siblings and the house of their childhood. And coming up in a couple
2: of weeks, we'll speak to Guardian journalist Amelia Gentleman about the full story of her investigation into the Windrush scandal. Her new book, The Windrush Betrayal, has recently been longlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize, and it's available to order online at The Guardian Bookshop.
0: If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter, at Guardian Books, or on the podcast page. And please do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Sean Kane, me Richard Lee, and me, Claire Armistead, and our producer Ian Chambers. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The
2: Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.